Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast. It's Yumiapathy. Hello. Uh, my name is Known Wells, and I am the creator of this show. And today, in episode 102, I am embracing emotions at work with, 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 with. I don't want to say with. I think I was combining with and Liz. Wiz. With Liz Foslin. Liz is a lovely feeling human, and she is the co-author of the book No Hard Feelings. She also created Liz and Molly. If you're not following Liz and Molly on Instagram, do that pronto. They're at Liz and Molly. M-O-L-L-I-E. And uh, it's great. Liz is uh, a fountain of knowledge. A fount? Fountain. A fount of knowledge. I don't know which was right. She is a fountain of knowledge, uh, or a fount, and uh, she's great. And we talk a lot about embracing emotions at work. We also talk about safe spaces we need to feel our feelings and how small moments can sometimes be the most transformative in our lives. Uh, It's a great episode, episode 102. Before we get to it, though, please, if you haven't, please, 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 cherry on top, leave a review for Yumi Empathy in Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and I would love you forever. I already love you forever, but please do it anyways. I will love you forever. Times infinity, how about that? Uh, leave, uh, yeah, leave a review. That'd be great. And also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Yumi Empathy, and also join the Facebook group. Uh, that's at facebook.com slash groups slash Yumi Empathy. Join there and join a community of feely humans. And uh, what else? Oh, speaking of community, uh, I'm, as you know, I've been working on a new project and it should be out early next year. Actually, as of this recording, it's out, I think. Who knows? I'm recording this in the past. No, that's not true. I am getting my timelines mixed up. This is coming out today, which is November 11th. And my thing isn't out, but I've teased it, and I just wanted to say that pretty soon you'll be hearing a little bit more. So look out for that. Make sure you're following along on Instagram at Yumiapathy. Okay, let's get to the episode. This is episode 102 about embracing emotions at work with Liz Foslin. Yeah. 
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm feeling all the things because I'm here in Empathy Land with writer, illustrator, behavioral science explorer, and author of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. It's Liz Fossling. Hello, Liz. Hi, nice to be here. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I I heard about you and your book through uh, the podcast, The Accidental Creative, which mm-hmm. um, my friend and colleague Mindy uh, brought my attention to. And, and he, Todd Henry, who runs that, used to work with us in, in many years ago. So I was like, oh, serendipity. That's cool. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> Um, well, how? Uh, well, for the listeners, we're going to talk about Liz's uh, awesome book, which I just ordered uh, today um, from my local bookshop. Um, it is Independent Bookstore Day, listeners. So go to your local bookshop, and uh, if they don't have No Hard Feelings, make sure they order it, uh, so you can pick up a copy and support uh, independent bookstores. Um, but today we're going to talk about the book and Liz's story and all of that goodness. But before we do that, we always have a little emotional check-in at the top. How, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How has your week been, Liz? I'm feeling good. I'm glad it's the weekend. Uh, this week I'm normally based in San Francisco, but I traveled to New York for work and now I'm in Chicago with my family. So it's been a lot of trying to still do work while traveling so I'm ready to just relax and have kind of a cozy weekend. Cozy's nice. Do you um I've always struggled with the idea of working like on planes and and things. Like I just I don't know what it is. I I don't maybe it's my attention span or focus, but I I whenever I'm traveling I just kind of want to I want to let my mind wander a bit and I I struggle with focusing on work when I travel. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit the opposite. I really don't like to travel. Like I just feel claustrophobic in planes and I don't like waiting at the airport. So for me, working actually allows me, like I want to focus on something so that I'm not so aware that I'm in a plane. (laughs) So working is kind of like my way of passing the time and like doing something constructive to kind of take my mind off of the fact that I'm like floating in space thousands of feet above the ground. <laughs> yeah, the death is imminent. Um, yeah, I hear that. I, I, I guess I can relate to that a bit because I personally, yeah, I, I agree. I'm not not a huge fan of planes. Like if I could drive everywhere, uh, it would be fantastic. But driving takes forever. Yeah, so sometimes yeah. just got to fly. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Well, I hope the weekend is cozy for you. Um, I, I like a cozy weekend. Um uh, I wanted to, uh, for me, uh, this week has been some ups and downs, but um, I have something exciting brewing, which 
by the time this episode comes out should be, you know, I should be sort of announcing it already. I, there's a really fantastic organization called uh, Project Heal and they're um, eating disorder awareness and sort of recovery organization, nonprofit. And uh, I applied to be uh, a volunteer for their first ever uh, camp. They're doing, it's called Camp Heal, where I will be a, uh, a, just like a camp counselor, which is very exciting. And I'll get to do a couple like workshops uh, for people who are sort of in their earlier stages of eating disorder recovery, mm. um, which I'm excited about. So Liz, for your information, I, I, I am in recovery from anorexia myself. Um, 10 plus years or so in recovery. And um, I, I'm just excited to kind of do that and give back. And the, the camp will be up in, um, up in LA. Um, so uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm excited for you. It sounds like a great cause. I've heard of Project Heal before, but I didn't, I wasn't aware that they were doing more like camp setting stuff. Yeah, no. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, this camp. It's like the first time they're trying it out. Uh, Arwen mm-hmm. Turner is the um, as the CEO of Project Heal. And I forget the creators, but uh, really great, really uh, sort of open hearted people. And I, I hope to kind of continue to work uh, with them. And I'm excited about the prospect, prospect of doing a couple of little workshops um, because um, one of my sort of grand visions for the work I do here on this podcast is to one day like actually like make a business and do workshops and and mm. on empathy and vulnerability and these these sorts of things I believe deeply in so um maybe I'll be a little, little sort of trial run uh which should be fun. Yeah, super cool. <laughs> well, uh Liz, uh let's let's get into your story. Um I I kind of like to start uh these conversations with the question, could you give me um, a couple of seminal moments from your childhood, your youth, your adulthood, just kind of a couple of moments that stick out in your noggin as being uh, pivotal sort of moments in your career or, or in your own mental health journey, uh, your own sort of emotional intelligence journey, just a couple of moments that stick out as being really kind of important. Yeah, so three come to mind. And the first is I went to a really small creative Montessori school through eighth grade, and there were 15 people in my class. And so I spent like the first, I don't know, until I was 12 with these same people, and we had formed really close connections. And then I went to a really large public high school that none of my friends from the smaller school went to. And I remember that, like, it was such a shock to suddenly be. In with so many people at that age that I didn't know, I felt like a complete outsider. Um, and it was also really different to suddenly just sit in a chair for eight hours a day. So Montessori style teaching is very like hands on, you do projects, it's all interdisciplinary. So math is more blended with art um, mm. than it is in a traditional curriculum. And so to me, suddenly having all of these subjects like ripped apart uh, felt really I just didn't love math like I used to because I was used to building like little 3D geodesic domes and, and, you know, having these like real world problems to solve. And suddenly it was just like rote formulas and memorizing. Sure. Um, 
So that I had a really hard time in high school. I think it was a, just a really rough transition for me. And I didn't have any tools to deal with suddenly all these emotions I was feeling to even think about how do I, how do I actually like try and branch out and make friends? I think I just felt so overwhelmed and afraid that I kind of shut down. Um, but then like, you know, senior year, I became a little more extroverted and then had a great time in college. And then that leads me to my second pivotal, pivotal moment, which was when I, so I studied economics and math in college and then became a consultant. And it was very much like, I thought I was successful. I was putting on the big, the, you know, the fancy suit and I was going mm -hmm. into an office building and going to a tall floor. And so I was like, check, 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 <laughs> not doing well. Um, but the work was, it was very much just stats based. So looking into a spreadsheet and, um, it was really long hours. And I think looking back, the work wasn't creative or meaningful to me. Um, and so I just tried at the time, I really thought too, that especially as a female in the workplace, I shouldn't show any emotion and you just put your head down and you just work, 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 work. And right. then ultimately somehow I had, this wasn't even a fully formed path or something. It was just like, okay, if I keep working, I'll be happy one day. Um, and that suppression I actually started getting after about a year, like severe migraines to the point where I finally realized like, I just have to quit this job. I can't keep doing this. It's not sustainable. And I'm not going to be successful in this world because my body is actually rejecting this yeah. job. Um, so that's my second one. And then my third one is, um, not my current partner, but my partner before that was an artist and a producer and much more emotionally expressive than I was at the time. And then anyone I knew. And he, I remember once I had an anxiety attack and he was there and I just really wanted him to leave. Mm. Um, because I had never shown that part of myself to anyone. I still tried to be this sort of consummate professional, or at least a woman who has kind of heard her life together in a real way. Um, and he just sat with me and he said, it's okay. I just love you. And this is a part of you. And I love this part too. And I'm here with you. And I remember to me, that moment just stands out as the first time in my life, really, that someone had said, it's okay. This, you know, this doesn't make you a worse human. It doesn't make you unlikable. It's just another part of you. And we all go through this and I'm just here for you, whether you're anxious, whether you're not. Um, to me, it's that specific moment that I think allowed me later to kind of unlock my emotions and be there for my friends in a more real way and share more of myself with others. That's, um, wow. Amazing. I, I think that you know, when we can be that for others, it's such like, cause I, we've all had that experience with people where, you know, we, you know, aren't sure about sharing our emotions and, and maybe fear it and, and maybe don't know how to. And then being met with such grace and kindness and acceptance is such a huge like motivator. It's such a huge like relief. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, it doesn't, you know, it, it was, it, it wasn't a, a very expensive therapy session or, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's, we often forget. It's just these really small gestures and moments that mm -hmm. are the ones that can be so transformational and just stick with people years later. And often it just comes down to sitting there and, and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to listen. What do you need? 
Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's not that much. So I, that's something also, and we can talk about this later, but in the book, just so much of our happiness and our mental health, I think comes down to creating these small moments of compassion for each other. Mm, yeah, you're right. It like, I, I think, I think it is important to, to recognize and call out that, that there are these small moments that can be transformational because it, it allows us as humans who may be feeling like, well, what can I do? I'm not a therapist. What can I do? I'm not a doctor. But like the truth is like we, all of us can do and enact so much change in each other by just meeting people where they are, just listening, just being present and, you know, just meeting people, just seeing them, seeing them for, for what they're going through and accepting their experience. You know, I lately I've been doing a lot of thinking and writing about validation and invalidation. And there's mm. so many things um, that we do, I think sometimes even um, unconsciously, like, and indirectly, we can even invalidate people's own experiences. And that's, that's like, that's the opposite of what your experience was like. That's, that would maybe uh, make someone turn inward and not want to mm. kind of express their emotions. But if we can validate them and just, we don't have to, we don't have to like therapize them. We don't have to, you know, get into it. It's just really about showing up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, it reminds me of John Gottman, who mm -hmm, the Gottmans yeah. are really, they're like the marriage experts and they have this concept of bids for attention which are all about in any relationship, platonic or romantic, we're constantly bidding for attention. And so if someone turns to you and says, hey, what's the weather forecast? They, you know, like if I ask you that, I can definitely look that up on Google, <laughs> but I'm just trying to have a little moment. And so it's, they've found that successful relationships, you return the bid 85% of the time, somewhere mm -hmm. around there. And that's just turning to someone and saying, oh, it's supposed to be sunny or, oh, let's look it up together as opposed to being like, just look it up on Google. Um, <laughs> and again, it's like these two really small things, but they found that the people that really gel, that like feel in harmony or, or are happy with each other respond even in a really small way to this bid for attention. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I've done some reading on Gottman and that's fascinating because like my my wife always asks me like what the time is and she's like holding her phone in her hand. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I need to be less like um, <laughs> flippant and more <laughs> accepting of the fact. I mean, that I think there's sometimes when you can be like, "I love you," but you gotta look at yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's in your hand, my dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So when you sort of had this moment with um, your uh, previous partner, like going into it, what were you? What were you feeling? What were you? projecting uh thinking about like oh he's gonna reject me he's gonna you know uh, it, was it fear what like what was going on emotionally yeah it was a lot of fear and a lot of um just having never exposed that part of myself to anyone uh in its i don't know if i'd ever been like made a conscious decision to sit down and say, I will never show anyone my anxious side, but I've yeah. always been afraid that it would make them doubt me or just not want to be around me. Cause I also beat myself up about it so much internally. Mm. Uh, so, and you know, there's 
one of the worst things we can do when we're feeling bad is to make ourselves feel bad about feeling bad. Right. Um, and I was very much doing that. And so I think, uh, yeah, I was afraid that he would suddenly not want to be with me anymore or think that I was broken or that it made me unlovable in some way, or that because it was a moment of weakness, it would cause him to turn away. Um, and it's, it's so interesting since then, uh, and, and it's, I don't, you know, this isn't like deeply revolutionary, but when it's the first time that it happens to you, it feels like it is. And so since then it is so much, so many of my friendships and relationships have deepened because of those moments, yeah. uh, not in spite of. And yeah. so I think that really, and it allowed me later just to feel more free and to feel more comfortable and accepted. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it really came from a place of fear. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Did you, like, growing up, did you, I mean, being in this Montessori school and feeling sort of connected there, like, how how were you raised? Like, what was your childhood like in terms of sort of the emotional stuff happening? Was it, uh, did you feel safe? Did you, did you, I mean, you said this was kind of your first time kind of opening up. Like, what was, what was the sort of emotional vibe of the, the household? Yeah, I definitely felt safe. And I, I've, I've always known I'm an only child and my parents are immigrants. Um, my dad is from Norway. My mom's from Germany. Uh, and I've always known deeply that they loved me and cared about me. Um, I think they came from cultures where it, you're just more stoic and there's not as much emotional expression. And also being immigrants in the U.S., I think very much drilled into me a, a, a work ethic and right. that you, sh- you know, you do put your head down and if you want it, you can make it happen, but it just requires a lot of work. Um, but you should be grateful for your opportunities. And so I think it implicit in that was, I think when you focus so much on always express gratitude, there's no space to be upset or to be anxious. Mm. Um, and also like I, I have, you know, and, and since then, I think I've learned that, like, if you're suffering, you're suffering, no matter what your circumstances are. Um, but at the time, I remember as a teenager, I was like, I don't know why I'm so sad, because it's true. Like, I have parents that love me. I have, I'm not in a war-torn country. Not that they grew up there either, but, there, you know, you can always look at the positives of your situation. But I sure. think you can't look at the positives and then suppress any negative emotions you have it's just so important to acknowledge those negative emotions and work through those as well um and so i think growing up i just never there was never a space and i was never given tools to deal with the negative emotions and so i then began to see them as these things that i really needed to package up and put to the side or get rid of or when i felt something negative it was really bad and it was shameful Um, because it just meant that I wasn't working hard enough or I wasn't grateful enough. Uh, and those I think are not healthy skills. Um, and it's interesting now to, now that I'm older and and am equipped with the tools to navigate negative emotions and actually have constructive conversations around them. Um, I've had, it's changed my relationship with my parents too. I think in that journey, in my journey, I've kind of brought them along a little bit. And I think we've deepened our relationships too, because I've been able to now go to them and say like, Hey, here's what's good in my life, but here's what I'm struggling with. Um, and then I've been really pleasantly surprised at what they, 
are finally responding to and, and we're sharing stories in a way that we didn't when I was younger. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Um, it is amazing to me how, and the more stories I hear on this show and, and certainly my story as well, this commonality of experience in terms of growing up, like I, you know, I had a fairly rough childhood uh, in, in a sense, but also there was, you know, there was, there was joy and bright spots, but the commonality between my experience and your experience and so many others is like not knowing, not having the tools, not developing the tools, not having um, that teaching, that education, that component of like, uh, you know, at a young age, like how do we get to a place where we can start navigating those and thinking and being curious about our emotions. And then, you know, it's only into our adulthood where we're starting to kind of explore these things. Like my, my hope, um, and I'm, I'm guessing this is your hope too. You tell me otherwise is, um, you know, we start to, we start to tackle these things earlier, like the generations, but you know, after us, uh, there's more sort of emotional intelligence work done at an earlier age. Yeah, I think that would be so valuable for so many people. Um, there's also, I know, I think it's at Yale, they have an emotional intelligence center, and there they have classes that are for very small children oh, wow. that are about teaching them a lot of it is as simple as labeling emotions and saying, okay, you're, you don't feel bad. What do you feel? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you jealous? Um, and even that skill is super valuable because when we label things, we're better able to understand them and work through them. And yeah. I think I definitely would just, I think even at 20, I was like, I feel bad. I'm going to ignore it. It's just this bad package. And I would never try and figure out like, well, what, what does that mean? Where is it coming from? What are the specific feelings? So I think that's a really positive signal that there is, there are spaces that are popping up for very small children to become more emotionally intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I was in my late twenties before I started to have like, <laughs> developed the tools. I'm 37 now. And I, I, uh, it's, I'm still learning, you know, I think it's, yeah. it's going to be sort of a life learning process, but, um, yeah, it's all interesting. And I, uh, I'm wondering, um, so for you, um, this, uh, so I was talking to my wife, uh, this morning about, uh, talking to you and, she works, she's a professor at a community college. She's an English professor. And, and, um, the environment there, uh, I, which I think maybe is potentially similar to like sort of more sort of workplace environments is very, very focused on like, she's just working all the time. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable, like how much she has to work. And she does, she told me she doesn't really feel space to have the opportunity to sort of express her emotions in that environment. And she wouldn't even, she said she wouldn't even know how to, to go about doing that. Whereas for me, um, I work, you know, in a tiny team, we're like a little startup, there's like 10 of us. Mm -hmm. And um, we have weekly 
retrospectives on Fridays where we, each of us, go through kind of like the ups and downs of our work lives and and personal lives even. And I, I've, you know, I've been open about my depression. And, and it's actually a beautiful thing where like I can kind of talk about sort of what's going on and, and maybe how that's impacting my work life and personal life. And, and people are there to, to listen and, and just to validate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we, how do we get better at, um, getting it more toward, cause like, I mean, obviously I'm comparing maybe apples and oranges, like very small team to like a large sort of university or a large business. Like how do we translate sort of the small sort of group stuff where I know everyone to the sort of bigger organizations? Yeah. So some of the, one of the most basic uh, things that my co-author Molly and I recommend at bigger organizations is just to have lunch together. There's just too many mm. offices where people just grab something at the vending machine or they run out and get something and then they eat at their desk. And it's true that in some jobs, it's high stress. There's a lot to be done. There's You're understaffed. And so it feels bad to take big chunks of big breaks. But 20 minutes for lunch with your colleagues, there's just, it's such a nice, there's something very fundamental about like literally breaking bread with other people. Um, and just having that time in the middle of the day, you build in this break uh, in which you can get to know each other. And so we often, a lot of people come to us. So the book is all about emotions in the workplace. And a lot of people come to us and ask, I'm bought in. I want to talk more about emotions with my colleagues. I want to get to know them better. How do I start doing this? And if you work in an office where this is a totally new concept, it can't start about the work. You can't just immediately sit everyone down in a team meeting and say, let's all talk about how we feel about this project. It's right. too much. But you just start by forming real relationships with people. And so one is to have lunch together. One is to just go and grab coffee with a colleague. Um, there's a lot of research that supports the importance of taking those 10 minute breaks, even a five minute break, going outside, walking around. Uh, it feels like you can't do it. Like there's not enough time, but you'll actually be more productive. If you take that break, uh, you'll feel better. There's just, it's linked with everything good in the workplace. And then there's also research that shows that actually the most mood boosting breaks are the ones that you take with a colleague and you learn something with each other or you form a connection because it not only makes that five minutes nicer, but it increases your feelings of belonging throughout the day. Right. So I think just taking it to, to reach out to a colleague saying, Hey, I'm going to grab a cup of coffee. Do you want to go with me? Um, or, Hey, I'm just going to walk around the block. Do you want to head out with me? And again, these are like often five minute breaks that can do a lot to increase your happiness. Um, so I would say starting there, which is just kind of reaching out to the people around you and just realizing that you you can take the five, 10 minute break. It's not going to ruin your day. It's actually going to make it better. And it's going to create a work life for you that is more sustainable in the long run. I hear you. And I it's like, it makes perfect sense to me creating these really intentional connection points with other humans. Like that's that's what the show's about. Like, that's what I feel like, uh, you know, how we sort of recover and how we sort of heal in our mental health and, and grow and learn as humans. But on the sort of like the playing the devil's advocate, 
Like I, I feel like I've been hearing a lot of this data and research for a long time, like being in various mm -hmm. corporate environments, like, you know, take the five minute break. It's going to allow you to uh, be more efficient and, and, you know, all these things. And, and yet there is still this, I mean, not for me in my current work environment, thankfully, but like I've had uh, very unhealthy work environments and I've, 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 you feel this pressure. There's like this unspoken pressure to like, you gotta, you gotta fucking crush it. You know, like, it's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. this weird pressure to like always be on. And that is, that feels inhuman to me. Yeah. Like, uh, how do you reconcile that? Yes. So I would say, unfortunately, uh, I think there are a lot of organizations out there that are still what you just described, which is <clears throat> we need to power through, crush it. Uh, and there, so I, my job, my day job is I work at a company called Humu, which was started by the person who led HR at Google for 10 years uh, and left a few years ago. And they looked a lot at, they tried to approach these questions from a data backed perspective. And so I do have hope because the company that I work at now, we're going into some of these really large organizations that might have similar cultures. And we're actually building out a financial case for why it is better, why like the you can crush it or you should crush it requires employees to be happier and healthier. Um, and so I think that it's, it's going to take a lot, but I do feel hope that there's enough research coming out and that there are enough companies that are actually looking internally and trying to run, looking at the data and building a financial case for taking breaks, for giving people vacation, for doing small things like, you know, structuring meetings so that you have a pre-mortem where you talk about issues that might come up or how you want to work together to avoid people blowing up at each other. And you have a postmortem where you talk about what went wrong, what could have gone better, what are people feeling, um, what do you want to change next time, and actually measure the financial impact of that. Because I, I also like I used to work in when I was a consultant, a lot of these people, they just wanted the data. And I think unfortunately, they still see emotion as this like woo woo thing that it's great, it's fun, but we don't need to care about it. Um, and so to those people, I do think it's really important that someone is able to build a real financial case for why, why all these things that you and I can intuit are valuable show up in tenure, um, show up in productivity in innovation and how people just feel about work. Hmm. So if you think about how much time it takes a company to recruit, interview, onboard, everything, like buy a new computer for someone, it's very expensive to yeah. bring on a new employee. And so it just makes no sense that you would bring this person on and then not want them to stay at your company for a long time and be happy and tell all their friends about how great the place they work at is and invite right. them to join too. Um, so I think coming at it from different angles and, and depending on what someone will respond to, having a case that shows that can do a lot. Hmm. I, I, you know, the data piece of it is very compelling. I was talking to um, Chris Brogan. Do you know him? I don't. Uh, he's he's been in sort of the business world, and he's like an advisor to business. He's a really sweet guy, and hmm. he's been talking a lot more about sort of 
being open about sort of emotions in the workplace as well. And he, we were talking about um, just like, like I hear, like I hear what you're saying, Liz, and I, 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 I'm on board and, but there's a, there's a strange part of me that's still a little bit cynical about culture shifts. Like, and what I mean by that is like, you know, I've been in environments, work environments where it's almost like you feel, you you have this sense that like HR, like the higher ups have like, okay, like, you know, uh, there's this, there's this data that says like, we need to do this thing. Let's like, let's implement this sort of workshop or whatever, uh, where no one goes to and, you know, or you're, you're forced to go to, and then you feel like this is boring and I'm not getting anything out of it, but it's almost like they have to like, it's like a checking of boxes. Like, mm -hmm. so it's almost like, I feel like, yes, data, like I, I agree, like it's obviously very compelling to people who are higher ups and are thinking about data and how it pertains to the profit line and all that stuff and, and the happiness of people. Um, but like, does that, is that the engine for really transforming the culture? Cause like, I feel like there's still, I guess, I guess I, I'm just saying the same thing over and over again, but, um, and maybe it just, takes time but I, I i i'm still maybe and i'm not a cynical person but i feel like <laughs> i'm a little cynical about like how do we truly transform the culture of business and really you know obviously the 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 numbers component and the data is compelling and you can't argue with data but like for for me from my perspective and i'll get off my soapbox for in just a moment but for me, as being a very highly sensitive person, very feely, uh, uh, and and that component of my my core truly saved my life, uh, mm. like no joke. So, like me coming from that perspective, like see, and seeing such power and 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 growth and learning in sort of emotions and feelings and like all these things, and then. Like, it's like, I, I, I want other people to see that. Like, I want them to really see that and truly like take it into their hearts, you know, like yeah, how do we so bridge think, that gap? Yeah. So I think the questions you're asking aren't cynical. I think they're just realistic. <laughs> um, and so the, the data angle is more, yes, it's focused at leadership and it's focused at the leadership that might be older and not as in touch with their feelings and resistant to the idea that we should create space for people to learn from and actually be motivated by and inspired by their emotions. So I think that's one element of driving trans like change across the business world. And unfortunately, I think some people just need to look at numbers. Mm -hmm. That said, I agree. I think you're not going to change a culture with data because you can put numbers on the board and you can stare at them all day and it's still not going to help you understand what it means to be empathetic. It might actually pull you away from empathy in some cases. Right. Um, so I would say there, the things that work are, it comes down again to these smaller moments. So I, it, I do, and this we hear a lot as well when we speak or in response to the book is people are like, okay, I want to change the culture. I feel totally overwhelmed. What can I do? I'm just one person. And you actually, you don't have, you probably can't drive change throughout your entire organization if it's 
20,000 people around the world, but you can on your team or you can with a group of colleagues and that can go a long way. And so small things that you can do are um, just learn to pronounce people's names and spell them correctly. If you see someone get interrupted in a meeting, don't put the onus on them to speak up. Just step in and say, hey, I noticed you interrupted. Do you want to finish your thought? If someone joins a conversation, just stop the conversation and say, hey, this is what we're talking about. Who's Here's who everyone is. And just like actually welcome them into that conversation. Um, thank people. If you, one of my coworkers, she is this lovely, she, on her phone, she just keeps track of what people's favorite treats are at the coffee shop. Uh-huh. And then when they do something really sweet, she knows exactly what to get them as a thank you. Um, and so again, these are not, these are things that anyone can do. And usually once you start modeling that behavior, you will, it will be returned. Cause I, I do, I think just people, even if they're cynical, even if they're hard on the outside, like they, we all just want to be cared about and it's a basic human need to feel belonging. And if yeah. someone is actively showcasing like how they're trying to create belonging for you and going out of their way to do that, I think you will respond in kind. And if you work in a place where you, you're, you're really doing this and people don't start to respond, then I think you just have they're to. monsters. Yeah. <laughs> or you also, <laughs> I mean, and I know that like not everyone has the privilege to be able to just like go to a different job, but I would really advise you to start looking for other opportunities. Mm. Um, Cause also when we talk about the companies that are really profitable now, I think a lot of the companies that are wildly profitable and are treating their employees really poorly. I, I don't know if they're going to be the most profitable in 10 years or 20 years as more and more people start to stand up and say, I don't feel good in this workplace. Or as we start to be like, I'm getting physically sick because of this job and I want to work somewhere else. Um, so my advice would be to like start acting on the change that you want to see. And hopefully that's reciprocated and it kind of ripples throughout your team. And if it doesn't, if you're met with no response, then really start looking for, well, I think, I think making a list of like, what, what kind of people do I want to work with? And how can I identify some organizations that might be a little healthier for me? Hmm. I think that's great. That's really well said. And it's like, be, be the change you want to see in the world. Um, and I, I think that's a very hopeful message. Like I, I, I do agree. Cause like when you're passionate about a thing and, and, and it's, it's really meaningful to you, you want to enact big change, right? You, and you, you, you tend to, at least maybe me, I'll put this on me. I tend to want to just kind of jump multiple steps to, to, you know, at a time. But the truth is, um, Maybe we can't enact huge change uh, in each sort of swing, but I think you're right, Liz, that we can maybe change one person at a time, you know, mm-hmm. allow them to and see how sort of um, connecting that experience can be. Yeah, and I think it's definitely still, we should still be looking for opportunities to drive bigger change. And I think mm-hmm. having a podcast that brings people on to just speak really openly and vulnerably is a great, you know, you're reaching a lot of people by doing that. Um, but I also, I think I just never, so I live in San Francisco and, and the whole focus is around growth and does this scale. And I just never want people to lose in the face of that, just the joy of, 
a, a small win or like a small interaction that can do a lot for someone. Um, we, I run these workshops at, at companies about belonging and when do you feel belonging in an organization? And that's a question that I pose to the group. And then I have them form duos and discuss that and then share out whatever they're comfortable sharing. And it's so interesting to see because a lot of people have the same question, like, how do we change the organization? How do we change the culture? And then the stories of when people felt belonging, they're always these really small moments. Um, and again, that's not to say we shouldn't focus on bigger change, but just never underestimating the power of just being kind to someone or, you know, if you see them crying, not getting really awkward about it, checking in with them afterwards, handing them a tissue, just being there for someone doesn't require that much. And it actually, like when you asked me, one of my most profound emotional moments was like this one sentence that someone said to me. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And empathy is a big part of that, I think. Yeah. You know, and, and no, I, I love that. I, it's, I think it's a really hopeful message um, because it can be overwhelming. Um, I want to go back to something you said, um, you kind of intimated briefly about sort of maybe the the sort of gender differences uh, in, in this sort of scenario. Um, for instance, you know, there's this, there's a lot of misogyny still <laughs> in the world mm-hmm. and, and sexism, uh, which is a uh, vile and, and should die slow death, uh, quick death. Let's call it quick. death. <laughs> um, but you know, there's uh, maybe uh, a fear for women, for instance, to, to speak up for, you know, for fear of like being called, you know, quote unquote whiny or, or like, Oh, you're just, you know, have you interacted with those sort of gender differences between like in terms of sort of embracing, embracing emotions at work? Yeah. The first thing that actually comes to mind is crying at work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's a really big misconception. So there was this researcher who asked a bunch of employees about crying at work and the men were, they seemed to be afraid of making women cry because they thought that it was sadness. Like they said, Oh, I don't want to give her harsh feedback or not harsh, but useful, um, critical feedback, or I just don't want to be as honest because I'm afraid that she'll get sad and cry. And most of the women said, when I cry in the workplace, it's not because I'm sad. It's because I'm extremely frustrated. (laughs) Um, And so I think that's a really good example of just a misperception of how we express emotion. Um, But I would say, so two other things. One is, yes, I think women face this double bind where if they speak up, they're aggressive. And if they don't, then they're weak and they're not leadership material. And so one thing I would encourage women to do is don't hide all of your emotions because you're afraid of that. Um, So I think that there are ways to speak to your emotions without getting emotional. And there's a lot of research that shows that leaders who do express some level of, of emotion without you know, being overly anxious or destabilizing the entire team are actually better leaders because we trust them more. So for example, if a leader is announcing a difficult quarter or maybe even something as as horrible as layoffs, if there's no emotional expression, if they act like a robot, no, like I don't want to work for that person because it's scary. It's scary that they can make these decisions and it doesn't seem to affect them at all. Um, The other thing is, is women 
you know, I think being at least socialized to be more in touch with their emotions and definitely women are socialized to talk more about their emotions. That can be also extremely valuable as a leader. Women can listen more. They can um, be more empathetic. And again, I'm saying this because of how we're socialized. Like I think men can absolutely do this too, but it's more just encouraging women not to just fully close their emotional selves off, um, but to look for the really positive aspects that might engage your workers. If you're really excited about something, be excited. It's really nice when as a, as a employee, you do something and your manager's excited for you. You should show that. And so just look for opportunities to express emotion. And then for men, I would say, I think that the way that we're socialized has also deeply hurt men because they are encouraged, you know, it's, it's boys will be boys and you can scuffle and you can be angry and all that's fine. But God forbid that you're vulnerable or that's weakness, you know, or if a man cries, I think that's even more taboo than if a woman cries in the office. Um, and so again, I would encourage men to just step outside of that gender role a little bit and think about when researchers looked at like who makes the best leader, the number one asset was emotional intelligence. And so men can also benefit from leaning in a little more to emotional expression. Um, I'll share one more story and then I'll, I'll let you yeah. <laughs> speak again. We open the book with uh, Howard Schultz, who is the C- who was the CEO of Starbucks. He had been the CEO almost from the beginning of Starbucks and then he left in the early 2000s. And then in the recession in 2008, Starbucks sales started declining rapidly and they were worried that they were going to have to lay off a bunch of employees. And so he decided to come back um, and, and become CEO again and turn the company around. And when he thought about it, he really believed, like he really wanted to make sure that they didn't have to lay off people because he knew that people depended on those salaries. And so he, when he took the stage, the first thing he did was he just allowed himself to cry a little bit. And then he kind of composed himself and then he provided a clear path forward. But part of that path forward was also, he said, my inbox is open. If I don't care who you are at this organization, if you have any feedback for how we can make this company better, often the baristas actually know way better than management what we need to do. Hmm. Email me, like just send me an email. And then the company was able to turn around and people really rallied around him. So I think that's such a wonderful example of, a man standing up, expressing emotion, but then still having a plan and inviting feedback, being vulnerable, saying, I don't have all the answers, but I want to get all the answers. You might have them. Let's work together. And it really worked in that situation. Um, So, yeah, I think both genders can benefit from just like effective emotional expression and like being vulnerable in moments. 100%. Yeah. And I love that. That's such that's such a powerful moment with Howard. Um, Howard, it's like I call him my first name, <laughs> Mr. Schultz. Uh, um, you know, and you mentioned inclusivity and like feeling a belonging. Like, what an amazing gesture that is to say, like, look, I'm the CEO. You're a barista, but like we, like I'm here to talk. Like I'm here to listen. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's huge. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, and it's just also thinking about if I were an employee, that would make me so much more loyal to the organization and mm-hmm. just feel happier about it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of benefits to vulnerability. 
thinking about sort of ex- embracing emotions at work, you know, the s- subtitle of, of no hard feelings. Um, what, you know, obviously, like I've always said, like when it comes to, for instance, like I'm trying to make an analogy here, for instance, like when it comes to the language we use as humans, I always felt like audience and intent matter. Uh, so we got to think about the audience. Like, are they, is this person going to be, uh, offended by me saying fuck or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or I know that this person has had, um, has attempted suicide, for instance. Like, I need to be mindful of that and, uh, be, be gentler and sort of more accepting of maybe, um, how they sort of describe their experiences around suicide. So when it comes to like embracing emotions at work, I think the same applies. Like I think we, and you tell me different, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like we as employees need to be mindful of the people we're around. Like we can't obviously go in and just start, um, talking openly about how we, um, you know, had a really sort of terrible depressive moment. Um, but I do think there's room for that and there can be space for that. So how do we, like, what's the, what's the dividing line? What's like, how do you as an employee decide like, Oh, what do I share? And what don't I share? And what, what emotions do I sort of engage in openly? And what, what do I need to be mindful of? And does it depend on sort of who you're talking to? I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. So in the book, we spend, I think it's the last chapter, we talk about the line between sharing and oversharing. Uh, and I, it is dependent on the relationship. So there are people at work that we become extremely close friends with. And I think those you can share much more openly than with someone that you're not as close with. Um, there's also definitely differences if you're the manager or the employee or the leader. But in general, um, I would say I think a, a nice balance is, again, to speak about your emotions without getting emotional and then share as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing. But if you're a manager, also think about, well, how would I feel if my manager said this to me? So kind of putting yourself in the other person's shoes, like you mentioned, really mm-hmm. trying to gauge your audience. Um especially as a manager, you don't want to burden people with more than they can bear. Um, and so I, I think I was asked a question recently, which was, uh, someone said, you know, when it, if, if we have a really close family member die, that seems to be okay to talk about in the office. But what if you just went through a breakup or it's, it's something that's like a little less socially acceptable to just be open about in the workplace. Um, how do you talk about that? And I think, we are, we, we cannot, if something is really bothering us, you can't hide that. Like it's going to come out <clears throat> in your gestures or in your general demeanor. And so I think if it's going to affect your work, if it's going to affect your team, it's really important to flag what's going on with yourself. And again, you don't have to go into a lot of detail because it is the workplace. Not everyone needs to know. Not everyone feels comfortable sharing, but just saying something like, Hey, I'm going through a lot. Right now, I just wanted to let you know um, I'm still like committed to the job. I'm still here, uh, but I'm just flagging that. So also, if it ever seems like I'm being kind of grouchy in a moment or if I'm sad, it has nothing to do with the team or you. Um, 
just want to flag that. And I think that can be a really wonderful way of communicating what's happening, giving people the information to be kinder to you, to be a little more flexible. Um, and then that's also when the people that are close to you will probably say like, Hey, what's going on? And then you can have a better conversation. And the people that you're just more on an acquaintance level with might say like, okay, get it. Like, you know, just let me know if there's anything I can do. Um, so yeah, I think flagging it and then, you know, just, just leaving it, leaving, maybe even leaving it a little on the other person to explore more, ask, and then, and then gauging how that conversation goes. Gotcha. Yeah. That's very helpful. Can you give me, um, and the listeners some kind of tips for just embracing their emotions at work? Just like, what are, what are some sort of some guidelines? Yeah. So I think the first is, um, I'll give, I'll give two that I really love from the book. So one is understand that your feelings aren't facts. Uh, and so your, your feelings are true. So if you're really upset about a situation, I'm not trying to diminish that at all, but always leave space to question your assumptions. So when we have an emotional reaction, it's usually because of something that happened and it's because of how we perceive the thing that happened. And so it's really important to hopefully you work in a place where you can assume good intentions and then go back and have a conversation about what you're upset about. And a great way to open that conversation is to say, when you did X, I felt Y. And so that's, you're making an observation when you interrupted me, it didn't make me feel heard. You're not saying like, you're being rude. You're always rude. You're not making these character generalizations that make the other person defensive. And and an anecdote from my work life is, a few years ago, I was working at a company and we hired this new employee. And I noticed that every time I asked him a question, when he responded, he would start speaking extremely slowly and over enunciate each word. And I was so mad at him. <laughs> I mean, like, that's, I make just, me, that's making my blood boil. I know. <laughs> but then, and so this drove me crazy. And then we Uh, a few weeks later, the team went out to dinner and he and I were actually having a pretty good conversation and without malice, without creating a victim or a perpetrator, I just said, Hey, do you notice that when I ask you a question, you start speaking really slowly again, simply an observation. And he said, I know I'm really working on it, but I get really flustered and I want to make sure that I don't look stupid. So I'm just choosing my words really carefully. And then that makes me slow down. Mm. And so it was, it was totally, I was very upset. That was a very true feeling, but it was based on a perception that wasn't accurate. Um, and so I think leave room for the other person to share their perspective that, you know, that maybe he did think I was, but then you can go from there. So I think that's one tip. And then the other one is, um, in the workplace, you are going to receive criticism. You need critical feedback to learn and grow. Uh, and it feels bad to get that. Like it's, I think it's a totally normal response and it's a universal reaction when someone, even if they're doing it in a really kind way, when they're pointing out something that you need to improve, you have this knee jerk, like, no, no, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. Um, and so to feel better in those moments, I recommend keeping a smile file, which is really cheesy, but it's a folder you create on your phone, on your desktop and your email And anytime you get a message or someone says something to you, that's a thank you that praises you that just generally makes you smile or feel really good. You save it to this file 
And then when you do get that critical feedback, you can return to this file and see that this one piece of criticism, it's just one data point in the picture of who you are. And so it's great. It's an opportunity for you to improve, but it's not a destruction of your entire sense of self-worth. And so I think it's just really nice to have, again, this like little emotional support folder when you need it. I love that idea. That's so cool. I I I think I I think I want to do that for myself because I, <laughs> I I definitely find myself. I mean, uh, we as humans are the most critical of ourselves, and then mm-hmm. I always have this sort of long gestating underpinning uh, feeling of that I'm not worthy, that I don't deserve love, like all these sort of awful things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, smile foul. That's adorable. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you do workshops. I'm really fascinated by workshops. Like I, and, and, and from like, tell me how the workshops came into sort of your world. And like, honestly, I'm curious about like how it got, how you got started doing them and like how, like, how is it set up? Like, what is, what does that look like at these companies? Like, what is the what are the activities like what kind of, what's the participation like like i'm deeply curious about that yeah so the workshops came out of the book um and so some of it was just through friends that we had that worked at organizations um and then some we've gotten more so the book came out maybe 3 months ago now and so i think as more people have started reading it and talking about it we've had more inbound requests um But the workshops are usually for a team uh, or for a lot of bigger companies have employee resource groups. So that can often be like for women in the workplace um, or they have interest groups. And so we'll go in and speak to one of those. And the workshops, we like to keep them around 45 minutes to an hour. And one thing that's really important is that it's interactive because I think emotions at work you can learn a lot from the research, but there's also so much to learn from your colleagues. Yeah. So we really try and facilitate that. Um, and then, yeah, it's really about, we try and make it really practical. So one of my experiences when I first started getting interested in how do I feel better at work? How do I, you know, just create what, like, what, what do I even want to do? How do I figure that out? Um, I felt that a lot of business books were very high level. So it would say like, be authentic, be vulnerable, find your passion. And I think those are all super valid pieces of advice. But it's so hard to walk into work the next day and then figure out what to do with that, right? Like, sure. what, okay, find my passion. Where do, where do I start? Yeah. Um, and so, so we, yeah, so we in the book, and then in the workshops, we really try and break it out into just small recommendations that have a big impact. Um, So as an example, one in this workshop around belonging, one of the things we say there is as a small thing that you can do starting tomorrow with your team is one of the times when we feel the most anxious and when we're most susceptible to imposter syndrome and to feeling like an outsider is when we're new, when we're just starting a job. And a way to help someone feel better is nowadays you usually also, when you interview at a company, you interview with more than one person. 
And so once you've hired someone, you go back to everyone that was involved in the interview process and you ask them on a post-it note to write three things. They should write what really impressed them during the interview, what skills the new person is bringing to the team that the team really needs, and then just one thing that you want to know more about them. It can build off of something that came up in the conversation or it can be totally random. And then when this person on their first day, they walk into the office, on their desk are all these little post-it notes that are essentially like affirmations of this is not a tryout anymore. We hired you. You're Mm. here. Um, We're excited. We need you to be here. And I think that just that small gesture can do a lot in boosting someone's mood. There's, um, I think it's coming out of Stanford. There's research into what are called belonging interventions. And they're these like half hour to an hour sessions where people, and they do it, I think most of the research has been around freshmen in college, so people of color or women in engineering programs, and they just sit down and they are told or they have conversations with upperclassmen who say, you know, just, it's normal to feel totally overwhelmed, it's normal to feel like an outsider, it's normal to, especially when you're new, to be like, you don't, you do not need to know everything after week one, you're going to have really hard days, but I had those hard days too. And I ended up like really enjoying my time here and learning a lot. And I think just that simple acknowledgement of it's hard, it's hard to be new. It's scary. It's overwhelming. No one's expecting you to be amazing on day one. So calm down, give yourself some space to feel the anxiety, to feel bad, reach out to people if you do, but know that you're not the only person that's going through this. Um, That actually has a enormous impact on how people feel a year later, three years later, and also in the school settings on their GPA. Mm. So for women in engineering programs, they're the GPA gap there, which usually like widens as school goes on. So by senior year, there's a, there's a gap. Women are, are not doing as well as men. The women that had this intervention, they actually did just as well as men. Um, and so I think it's so powerful just to normalize up and downs and to also really welcome someone into an institution and say, we want you here. This wasn't a fluke. Get, you know, imposter syndrome. It's totally fine to have it, but don't let it dictate how you act or dictate how you actually think about your ability. Yeah. Wow. No, that's really beautiful. And and I think it makes total sense. You're really just kind of giving people the space to, to, well, reminding them that they're not alone, first of all, yeah. and, and reminding them that, that, you know, I've been there before and I know what you're going through. Like that's, that's, that's an amazing and powerful sort of connection point. Um, you know, let, so what are the, uh, you mentioned like sort of the participation element of those, these workshops, like what, what does that look like exactly? Yeah. So a lot of it is conversation based. Um, so we'll have prompts and we'll have people discuss those prompts. Uh, and then we, you know, they can share out a lot of it too is, is, so one of the reasons that we have people, uh, often pair into duos is that if you have bigger groups, often one person dominates the entire conversation. Uh, or if someone is more extroverted, they feel comfortable speaking out and kind of sharing their story. And then the introverts never get a chance to speak or never feel comfortable speaking up. So in a duo, it's always like one minute, one person, one minute, the other person. Um, and there's also research that shows that you're more able to form a real connection in that time. Uh, and yeah, then we give them a prompt, we have them discuss it. And if people are comfortable sharing out, we'll have them share out. 
uh, we can also, we often also do like popcorn style, like what are the words that came out up in your conversation a lot? Um, what's an action that came up? Just shout it out, see if there's any similarities. Um, but yeah, th- there, it's usually a conversation based around a prompt that has to do with the subject that we're talking about. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. I, <laughs> I mean, I remember being back in school and like partnering up. It was always threes. For some reason, it was always threes. And, and hmm. one person wasn't participating. And the other, it was always, yeah, the <laughs> sort of big, sort of loud extroverts were always kind of leading the charge. And I was sitting there quietly doing my work, but not connecting. Yeah. 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 And for me as an introvert, um, I think I'm extra mindful about like, yeah, I often want to talk and want to form a connection, but if the group is too big, I'm just like, well, I don't even know how to start saying anything into this big noisy group. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'll just sit over here and take notes. Yeah. Whatever, you know? (laughs) Oh, no, I hear you 100%. Um, well, uh, let's start to kind of like wind it down a little bit. Um, I'm curious, like how, like how did the, uh, we don't have to go into deep uh, depth about this, but like how did the Liz and Molly start and how'd you meet, uh, how'd you meet Molly and how'd that connection start? Yeah. So I was living in San Francisco and then took a job in New York. So I was, I had to move across the country And I had never, I think I had visited New York twice briefly and I was terrified. I just kept envisioning myself. I think I'm very West Coast in disposition. uh, And so New York scared me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I just imagine like landing and then having people yell at me and (laughs) say the F word at me and then like not understanding the subway. So I emailed all of my friends and I asked them, if there was someone that they really liked that lived in New York to set me up on platonic friend dates. And Molly was actually one of those first friend dates. And we are, I think we had coffee and we kind of immediately bonded. We're both introverts. We both really like taking on creative side projects and we also are really bad sleepers. We have very similar intense sleep routines. <laughs> um, so I think we were like neurotic and creative in, in very similar ways and sure. that formed a friendship. Um, and then, yeah, we, we started talking a lot about being introverts in extroverted workspaces. I remember I had just come back from a work retreat at my new company and it was clearly designed by extroverts because it was two days and there was no downtime. It was just like meeting, meeting, brainstorm, party, dinner, this. And at the end of the two days, I was like, I need to get out of here. I just never want to see any of you again. This is way too much for me. Um, So Molly and I started writing and then I began illustrating. uh, And so we actually found, we had an article on Susan Cain who wrote Quiet, the book about introverts. We had an article. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I'd love to have her on this podcast. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I haven't actually heard her on podcasts in a while. Um, She's, I would love to hear her. (laughs) Um, She, so we had an article published on her online platform that did really well. Um, And then kind of as we started talking more, we realized that underlying all of our conversations was just emotions um, and kind of the emotions of being an introvert and, how we, we also both had 
experiences early on in our careers of kind of burning out of jobs because we couldn't handle or like not handle, but we just didn't know how to wrap our minds or our words around what we were feeling. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's how we became friends and then kind of found a really nice working relationship too. Lovely. Yeah. And Liz and Molly, the sort of the account and the, the, the platform is, is delightful. It's, it's, it's really insightful and funny and, um, you know, listeners, if you're not following Liz and Molly on Instagram, uh, do so. Cause it's, it's a, it's a, it's a delight. Um, I have two more Thanks. questions for you. One mm-hmm. is what's your favorite Calvin Hobbes book? Oh, Oh, I th- oh my gosh. I'm blanking on the names. I think there's like, let's go exploring was uh-huh, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my favorite, I mean, there's, just hilarious ones where he says like, there's nothing like the panic or the motivation of like last minute panic or something. I mean, (laughs) Um, you don't have to give me a specific like strip. You can give like a book, you know, I'll get, I think it's let's go exploring is the name of the book. Yeah. But then I do want to call out my favorite Calvin and Hobbes storyline is when he finds a raccoon and the raccoon dies. And I just remember, and then he and Hobbes have to like grapple with what does death mean? What is, what is, what's the meaning of life? And it was just like black and white illustrations, very few words. And it's like one of the most touching things I've ever read. Um, So I think that inspired a lot of the illustrations in the book, which is like, it can be really simple and yet like deeply profound. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember that, that, that strip uh, very clearly. I, I read so much Calvin Hobbes growing up and it's uh, yeah, it's uh, Bill Watterson. Amazing. Just like, so great. I learned so much about life reading yeah. Calvin Hobbes. What was your favorite book? I mean, I was, I, I love Yukon Ho. Um, mm, oh yeah. You know, I, I did like um, the, I forgot the title, but it was like a space sort of sci-fi, like, you know, oh, like, like Space Invader? Yeah. 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 I always forget the names. We have we actually have the whole the big sort of uh hard hardbound set of like all of them together, uh, which is pretty fantastic. But yeah, I I I I mean I remember like as a kid just like imagining myself as Calvin like in the woods just kind of exploring. Mm-hmm. Like that was like yeah. where my imagination went. It was the best. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And then the last question I have for you is what is what do you, what do you do about self-care? What's your self-care practice like? Yeah, so my self-care I am someone who needs <clears throat> um a lot of alone time. And so I have started because I also have a really hard time saying no to social stuff or no to fun projects. And so I've actually started on my calendar, blocking off three evenings a night and saying, Liz, you cannot do anything on this evening. The only thing you can do is come home or go to the gym and just read a book and listen to podcasts and be by yourself. Um, and I found three evenings, uh, you said three evenings a night. Oh, sorry. Yes. Three evenings a week. Okay. Um, And I found that that's like what I need to not feel absolutely at at the end of my rope on Fridays or even at the end of a weekend. Um, And then I think just like drawing for me is a very meditative experience. I've tried a lot of the like sitting down, closing your eyes, lying down meditation and somehow 
I don't, it just gives me too much. Like, I just don't like being so aware of the fact that I'm like a <laughs> conscious being in a body. So I'd much rather like go for a hike or yeah. just put on music and draw and like actually do something physical and get into a flow state. And I think that has the same benefits for me as meditation without all the like existential angst. <laughs> <laughs> all the death thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I relate to that immensely. I, I've tried sort of the classic sit down meditation style and i i i don't know if it's for me i i i like to hike and run and those are kind of my i try to make those my meditative activities yeah um, i'm very much yeah no and i love the idea of like blocking off uh days in the week i think that's a really good those are great boundaries you're creating for yourself like and and you recognizing that like oh i have a problem saying no sometimes so this is like another way to preemptively say no yeah yeah exactly that's great well um we always wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes these are mm. people in our lives uh could be actually characters from books could be characters from movies uh authors we love people we know personally friends family etc doesn't matter just someone who's like a really good empathetic person i will uh name mine first to give you liz a moment to think on your empathy hero uh, my empathy hero this week is Isaac Asimov, the writer, and I just really love this quote from him, um, and I will say it right now. Quote, uh, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in, end quote. And I, like, that really hit me right in the heart. Like, I just love the idea of, um, like, I think we as humans go through the world and, and we make assumptions like that's such a natural human thing to do. And I think those assumptions can uh, come from a good place. They can be valid. They could even be true. But I think checking your assumptions and you talked about this earlier, Liz, um, mm. checking your assumptions and, and not relying on it necessarily. Like think about like the other side of it. Maybe try some empathy. Think about, um, all the perspectives, like, because assumptions can get you into trouble. Assumptions, like, uh, say that you know a thing. You already know a thing. But the truth is, like, we can't know unless we have all the facts and we interact with the world in, in a way that's that's whole and full and sort of um, allowing others to be a part of it. And so I love that quote. And that's why Isaac Asimov is my empathy hero this week. I love that. Um, I'm going to say, I'm sure this has come up before, but I just love Brene Brown. Um, she's come up before, but it doesn't mean you can't. I mean, she's your personal empathy hero. That's great. Yeah, she is amazing. Another vote for Brene Brown. Uh, and I really love, especially what she writes about shame. Um, and I think she's, she says that like shame corrodes the part of us that thinks we can change. Mm. Uh, and I was actually also just looking at research that shows like how demotivational and poisonous shame can be and always flipping that to be like, well, okay, there's this thing that maybe I want to work on or that's imperfect. Um, but how, how can I improve or how can I see the beauty in it? And just trying to step out of feeling so much shame around, especially our emotions. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I've read some stuff on, on shame that she's written. And yeah, she's amazing. Like I, 
so good. So good. I like it's. She's one of my dream guests to have on Yumiapathy, for sure. Yeah, she's. Like everything she says, I'm just like yes, yes, yes. I know. It's just like she's. It's like, yeah, she's like speaking directly to my heart, and just like wow, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. Um, well, Liz, where where can the Yumi Empathy Feely Humans connect with you online and and read No Hard Feelings, your new book? Yeah, so No Hard Feelings is online. It's also at your local bookstore, or they can order it. Um, and then we are Liz and Molly. Molly is M O L L I E. And so that's on Instagram. And then also our website is lizandmolly.com. And on there we have assessments you can take to better understand your emotions and some guides to giving feedback, receiving feedback. So there's a lot of useful stuff uh, in there that's not in the book. Awesome. Well, uh, listeners, all those links will be in the show notes for this episode. Liz, thank you so much for being a guest on Yumi Empathy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate coming on. Oh, lovely to hear. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Empathy.